That's What She Said is presented by Academy Sports and Outdoors. The Peabody and Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 film series presents Once Upon a Time in Queens, a four-part documentary event about the city, the swagger, and the wild ride of the 1986 Mets. This documentary explores the epic tale of one of baseball's most dominant and iconoclastic teams and their legendary World Series comeback. Hear from former Mets players and fans, including Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, Bill Burr, Cindy Lauper, and more. All four parts of Once Upon a Time in Queens are available to stream on ESPN Plus and the ESPN app right now. Plus, Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio Monday through Friday from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, bringing you the insights from former number one pick in the NFL draft, Keyshawn Johnson, along with number two pick in the NBA draft, Jay Williams, and host Max Kellerman on the latest news from the NFL and college football. Tune in to hear them debate the biggest and most pressing topics. That's Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio and ESPN News, or listen to the podcast of the show. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, my name is Dr. Wendy Bollaby, and uh, my current dilemma is trying to figure out how to find the time to allow my twins to read 20 minutes a day that they're supposed to, in addition to everything else we got to do the course of the day. Ooh, this is a tough one because I don't have kids, but also because you're a doctor who has very clearly, obviously mastered single motherhood and balancing life and work and kiddos. So it's not like I'm going to get complicated with my suggestion, as I'm sure you've tried it all. Instead, I'm taking you back to the basics. Let's just do this thought exercise if you haven't done it recently. If you're being truly honest with yourself, how scheduled is your day? Are you scheduling reading time like you'd schedule a meeting, say? Because we got to do that with everything, pretty much, the busier we get. Exercise, meditation, reading, eating. You got to put it in the books in red permanent ink, which is, of course, completely figurative because we're all just using phone calendars. But you know what I mean. Schedule it and stick to it. Um... Now, if that is just not possible, could you combine things? Could you have reading with dinner time, reading in bath time, reading while waiting in line at a doctor's office? You know, maybe get creative with it. And if that doesn't work, maybe the kids can learn to read next year, right? We got a lot going on. They'll be fine. That's what she said. Hey, everybody, excited for you to hear this week's guest because she's arriving to the podcast at a perfect time. Mental health in athletes has never been a bigger topic. Also, the hottest show in the world right now just won a bunch of Emmys, Ted Lasso, has been prominently featuring a sports psychologist character, Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, which I haven't asked, but I'm going to guess is a nod to Dr. Marsha Fieldstone from Sleepless in Seattle, basing that solely on the show's references to rom-coms and other great entertainment moments in the zeitgeist. So I think that's what that's a reference to. Um, But today's guest is a real-life Dr. Sharon. I did not get a chance to ask her whether she speaks English, Spanish, and French like the character on the show. Uh, but I did get to ask her a lot of good stuff. And before I get to the interview, I want to remind you to go to the iTunes or podcast app and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give it a review. It really does help. And you could be featured on this podcast like MJ Graham 8616. 
who wrote, Love the varied guests and wide-ranging discussions. As a Brit living in Delaware, I think you should have Susie Dent on the pod. I know you referenced her tweets in the past, but think it would be a fun discussion. MJ, I have reached out to Susie Dent's people, and I have not heard back. But I'm going to follow up again now that you reminded me, and I'm going to put in the word that a Brit requested it. Maybe there will be some sort of, you know, common tie between uh, fellow Brits that will inspire her to come on the show because she is an etymology queen, and I need to have her on. Thank you, MJ, for rating and reviewing. All right, let's get back to this week's guest, Dr. Wendy Balaby, the Director of Performance and Mental Health for the Chicago Bulls, founder of Balaby Consulting, which is a performance psychology firm, and the founder and director of the non-for-profit Wisdom Knot. We talk about her roots in Ghana, working with athletes versus executives. Uh, we talk a bit about what the media gets wrong when talking about mental health and athletes, why it's important for athletes to talk about and acknowledge their struggles, but also be willing to get out there even if they're not 100% social media's effect on athlete performance and a very blunt discussion about sex at the NBA Rookie Symposium. Plus, I ask her the question that none of my guests have yet been able to answer. Enjoy the interview. That's what she said. So I'm very excited to have this week's guest, in part because mental health in sports has never been a bigger topic, but also because she comes on the recommendation of one George Carl, who apparently is started listening to the podcast, probably because of his buddy Terry Stotts being on, and recommending that Wendy is sort of like the new doctor from Ted Lasso, which is a hell of a pitch at a time when Ted Lasso couldn't be more popular. And especially according to more recent episodes, as we're getting to know um, more of Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, uh, we'll find out whether Dr. Wendy Vallabi is, is, is similar in many ways, or if that's just a good pitch, but either way, I'll take it. Um, let's talk about where you got started because the bio is intimidating. The work is impressive, but you're just a, a normal person. You got to start somewhere. So what were you like as a kid? What were you into? Um, I was into well, everything, sports, um, uh, the arts. Um, so I'm actually, and that was because of, I think my coming from another country. So I'm originally from Ghana. So I came to the United States when I was, um, when I was almost four. And so my parents wanted us, you know, to be Americanized. So they had us do every single thing that we could possibly do. So I got into, you know, all of the things, all the sports, all of the, the arts st stuck with basketball and track, um, and um, continued continued on, um, but I think I've always been into which I got from my parents to finding is helping other people. I was doing that at a, trying to figure that out, you know, at a young age. What could I do to help this person, help this friend, or do whatever? So that's always been something part of my path as well. What did your parents do to help others that modeled that for you? My my parents helped, um, and no exaggeration, at least 300 people come over from Ghana to the wow. United States. So we used to call our house the Ghanaian refugee camp because they were always <laughs> helping somebody come over and they stayed with us and they helped them get a job and get settled and get their paperwork and, you know, and send them on their way and they'd help somebody else. And so and then those person, those people help somebody else. And so they're an integral part of a lot of people helping a lot of people come for a better life. That's very cool. At a young age, were you able to see that that was a great thing and be welcoming and open with your home? Or were there times when you wanted attention or resources or otherwise and, and didn't always handle it well? You know, I think it was it was more that it was. Um, well, actually, take that back. I don't think it was either. How about that? I think, <laughs> was, I think it was the fact that my parents were working and going to school, and so there was the, the fact that it wasn't just my brother and I in the home by itself. So right. it was that was a very thing is that it was we were glad that there was somebody else there and we weren't there alone because they were always doing you know again working and going to school. 
You mentioned track. I was a college track athlete. It sounds like you played both basketball and track in college. Um, I played basketball. I, okay. I quit. Yeah, stopped track early on. What was your track event? Um, I ran the the two twenty and the the hundred. Okay, nice. So you end up at Georgia Southern. What drew you to that school? So I honestly, I went to Georgia Southern because it was a it was a default. So um, I will say that I'm so glad that I went there, the education that I got. Um, but because from where I was coming and I was in Atlanta, and I was looking for a program for the sports psych program. And I contacted you know, University of Georgia and Georgia Southern. University Georgia never got back to me till much later and Georgia Southern did. And so I just went full speed on um, and and saw the opportunity to to get my, my, my education there. Um, I'm so glad that that happened because, again, I um, although I will say I'm not a big fan of Statesboro, but the education I got at Georgia Southern was like it was priceless. So. So you already knew you wanted to go into sports psychology. What was it about becoming an athlete and, and getting involved with the helping of others that wanted made you want to marry the two or made you fascinated by the element? So, um, but I, I didn't always know I wanted to be a sports psychologist. I actually didn't even know about sports psychology until I was 25. And that was because I was working at a facility, I graduated undergraduate, and um, I was working at a facility for um, bipolar and depressed adults. And one of my coworkers was going to a sports psych conference in New Orleans. And so she knew I was an athlete. So she asked if I'd go with her, you know, our job was going to pay for it. And so it was a free weekend in New Orleans. So I was like, go. yeah, let's do this. And it <laughs> so changed went, the whole path of your life. Yeah. Completely changed. <laughs> New Orleans can do that to people in a number of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I was just going to have a great time, you know, and I did, I had a great time in New Orleans. I don't even know if I even attended a sports like conference event. Um, <laughs> like a year or so later, I started thinking, what is this sports like thing? What was that? What was that whole thing about? So I contacted her and got more information and started looking it up and exploring where school was. And so that, that sent me on the path. But I, again, I had no idea that it even existed till I was 25. Yeah. So I must've misheard. I thought you said that your interest in, in Georgia Southern and, and, and Georgia were, were based on the programs that they had. So at the time you weren't sure yet, you were just sort of that they were colleges nearby and you wanted to go have a more amorphous study until you figured out what you wanted to do? Correct. I was living in Atlanta. And at, and at that particular time, I was actually working with adolescent male sex offenders. Whoa. And um, and that's the, the trajectory. Like I wanted to do more. I, there's, I don't know what it is I want to do, but I wanted to do more. So I started thinking about that one conference that I didn't go to in New Orleans. And what does that really mean? And started thinking, I actually, I like psychology and love sports and is this really a career? Do people get paid for this? And right. I just started looking more and more. And I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is really cool. What do I need to do? And then contacted the schools and went from there. So um, when you graduated with your, what was your undergraduate degree? It was in psychology. Got it. And then you end up going to pursue um, your doctorate. And how did you choose and select where you wanted to work and what you wanted to focus on? So my, my, my focus was completely on wanting to work with athletes. I wanted to do the applied work. So in sports psych, there is research and then there's teaching and then there's applied work. And I wanted to do the applied work. And so when I was looking at programs into PhD programs, they were all um, very uh, academic for the first three years. And then you got to work with folks to figure out how to, you know, what your, what your niche is and what, how do you work with players and so on and so forth. And so, um, I thought, I don't know if I really want to go that route because I don't know if I'm going to do four more years of school or should I say actually five more years of school. 
Um, I don't want it to be just psychology. I need it to be sports in there. I need to have some kind of interaction with that. Otherwise, it's just not going to work for me personally. And so um, my professor said, don't you look into an applied program because you start off right away. And so that's what I did, which is how I found Argosy. And it was applied. And my first semester, you literally start working with folks and you, you learn how to do that. And so um, that's why that became my, my choice, because I wanted to do the applied work and I wanted to learn how to do it right away. Yeah. Then that makes sense because there are a lot of people, I think, who go to like law school or somewhere else and the, the application of what they're learning doesn't come till later. Then they realize, oh, I don't even like being a lawyer and I just spent all this time in school. So you got some more hands on to learn that it was indeed something that you were interested in. You ended up at, at James Madison as a liaison between athletics and the sort of counseling student development center. So that's really then putting your work uh, into action immediately. Did you have any jobs in between, either in college or anything. It sounds like you just went, I know what I want to do, and then I'm going to start doing it. Um, well, when I figured it out, yes, later when I figured it out, then I just went, I went for it. Um, prior to, yes, I had several different jobs because I, you know, I was trying to figure it out. But then after, I think I said when I turned 25 and and started looking more and then went back to school, then that was head on. But um, I, I will say that one thing that I think that I did I think one thing that I did that I think helped me in my career that I tell students all the time is that um, when I once I started into the program, into the my master's program, my doctorate program, I started to to give away sports like services. So I was anybody I could find, you know, let me again, I wanted to find figure out how to do this. Right. So I would be at a, you know, at a church event or at a baseball game. And oh, your high school's Oh, can I, I I'm a student. Can I help him out? You know, and right. free stuff. And so that's that's what I did. Um, so that was my, you know, so I said my side gig. And then my, my side hustle was always waiting tables because you got you to make, make the money. So you spent five years at James Madison. And um, in addition to working with student athletes and coaches and in the athletic department, also developed a sports psychology department as part of that athletic department. This was what, around 2005-ish, right? Uh, 2005 to 2009. So was it novel to try to introduce something like that into an athletic department at a college? Um, it, it, it was. I mean, when I when I when I started, um, it was so. I will say when I got there at James Madison, they were looking for something. They didn't know what it was. And so when I got there, you know, I got there as an intern and it took maybe two months and they were like, Whoa, wow, this is something that's here. Our, our, you know, our players our student athletes, we, we want this for them. Um, and as I started looking around, there was, I think I'd met maybe nine people that was like affiliated with the university. So there, it was, it was not part of it, which was actually kind of astonishing that this was not a service that was there. And so um, it was very new. And so the things that I was able to create and do at James Madison was, um, was not happening all over the country, you know? And so people were looking to see what I was doing, which was, which was great. Um, because they were wanting to say, how did you ever do this? But, you know, I have to give JMU the credit. They were like, let's figure this out. Let's, you know, let's see how we can develop this for our athletes. Um, but it, I remember, and I think I'm going to say maybe 2006 or seven conversations of, oh, in the next five or 10 years, every university is going to have this. And here we are, 2021. Right. Not the case. Yeah. So you start working with Olympic athletes, uh, five years spent working with two winter Olympics and a summer Olympics, all sorts of athletes across different um, elements. That's got to be fascinating to just witness the difference between 
at a certain level, collegiate athletics at James Madison is, is a big deal. The highest level for those athletes that they're probably going to get to. That's still vastly different from Olympic level competition, the best in the world and understanding the pressures and the expectations and the amount of work that's likely been spent to achieve that level. And I wonder what the differences you noticed early on were maybe, if any, between the issues that came to your door at school versus the Olympic athletes. Sure. I, the, the biggest issue I would say, which I think is also is different with the Olymp- not only with um, college, but I think cross board the difference with Olympic athletes is that they um, there were times that Olympic athletes would struggle with being selfish because they literally had to be selfish because they couldn't have a job. They were training two, maybe three times a day. And some of them had families, they had kids, um, they, or maybe they were single, but somebody else was paying for them to to live. And so you know, after three or four years of this, you get, it starts to weigh on you. And so that was a, the big thing that I was seeing is that they were struggling with that piece that they had to be selfish in order to achieve this, try to achieve this goal. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. And um, also, I think you're becoming essentially a professional, even back in the days when we used to call them amateurs, because so much of what you did depended on the support of others. Mm-hmm. And you needed to be good enough to keep getting that support, whether from sponsors or jobs or whatever. And it's the equivalent of being a professional athlete. Your paycheck is dependent, but you're not getting the fame and the fortune from it. You're just trying to stay in it, which is a whole different level of stress than the kind that's at least buoyed by uh, power and fame and attention and money. Um, so you end up at Acumen Performance Group for another couple of years. What what did you do there? Was that um, consulting in terms of people would come or, or teams would hire out that consulting group to send you to work with athletes? Yes, sir. and in businesses. So when I was with the Olympics, I got I got connected. I actually would take some of our athletes to go train at the Navy SEAL um, facility wow. in San Diego. And so that's how I got connected with some of the Navy SEALs. And so they wanted to start a company, so they asked me to be a part of it. So so we started APG together. And oh, so you founded it. Nice. Founded it. Yep. So part of that was just it was a, that we wanted to put together this program that it would be fit for not only sports, but also for businesses, because we all have to perform regardless of what your job is. You have to perform. And so thinking that, you know, let's figure out how we can, this is a niche to go in and, and show businesses how to do re- resiliency or perform, you know, again, just all of those things. And so, and sports as well. And so that's a, what you said is exactly what happened. We would get in contact with a team or a business and we would go in for a couple of days and, and give our whole program for two or three days and, and leave. And it started to where there were several pro- uh, businesses that wanted us on an annual basis because they would have, you know, have the retreat and we would be part of the retreat. Yeah. Um, so it was, and, and it's still going on. So APG is still going on. I just I just stopped my part of it. My and but they're still going strong. So they're doing they're doing great work. I feel like in our society we hold the Navy SEALs up as this very um, I, the ideal of toughness and mental strength and everything else and physical ability beyond which we can imagine. Um, in working with them or in maybe applying some of the elements that is using that that real world experience to to the performance in business did you actually find yourself more amazed by the seals or was it okay these people are amazing of course but we've sort of made this caricature of them for the purposes of of lending it out in moments like where you're trying to get businesses to feel to find their own toughness no sure there were i, I definitely thought that they were um definitely amazing when you get to, when you get to know them, you get to talk to them. I think the biggest surprise for me was that they were not big. They were, they're not physically, they're not big men. Right. They're actually 
I mean, I think I was taller than all of them. <laughs> they're actually ambiguous, <laughs> but you know, they're actually not, they're not really big men. And so you, you, you think that because um, what they will do physically, they have to be physically big, which completely connects with what we're talking about. It was all mental. Right. So it didn't matter what your size, they, it was, it was, you know, what was in your head, it was your acumen, right? That was, that was what, what um, helped them prevail. And so as you talk to them, you see that they had those, those characteristics and they're able to, to, to charge forward for sure. I do this thing called campus conversations with the SBNW and we send a handful of panelists. We gather them up as alums of, of, a, of a school and I'll moderate those alums in speaking to all of the female varsity athletes at the college about a variety of things uh, that they should know while they're competing, what they might need to set up for life after. And one of the things that I think comes up is what we don't understand as athletes competing our entire lives and training our entire lives is the experience of someone who never did that. And I wonder when you're working in businesses, do you notice a very clear delineation between those who had been athletes, how they handle adversity, how they handle failure, how they handle teamwork and leadership versus those who you're trying to apply, whether it's Navy SEAL or other sports psychology practices to, and it becomes clear that maybe they never have gone through the motions of what it is to be a teammate and push through. Um, and, and was it, is it more of a challenge to work with those people then? I, I wouldn't say it was more of a challenge, but I definitely think that you see it because just for what you're saying is that it's, I think the big thing you learn from playing sports is the, is working with other people and we're being a part of a team and knowing where to, to lead and where to sacrifice, or maybe you don't know exactly, but you know, that's involved. So maybe you don't know whether you're a leader or you're, or where, or when you should lead, but you know, somebody needs to lead and that needs, that's a process. And so you definitely see that there's the folks that didn't play team sports where they struggle with that. This is, this is a team effort and that we all, we have to help each other and that we all need to, um, we don't have to get along, but we need to respect each other and that space and move forward. So, um, I wouldn't say it was a challenge, but you definitely see, or I think you see, you see a difference. Yeah. And I notice it, especially in terms of like things like failure, because when you're growing up, you're going to fail a test or you're going to not perform as well at something, but the public and shared failure of sports, whether mm -hmm. that's missing the final shot or anything else, um, you need to, as they say in Ted Lasso, be a goldfish. You need to figure out how to learn from it and move on, but also not carry it with you. And some people are not good at that if they mm -hmm. never learned that it's it becomes everything is a massive block in their way if if that failure gets stuck there so i imagine that was really interesting for you to balance the work you were doing with the best athletes in the world and then going into a boardroom and talking to people who are on a very different level of, of stress and and everything else you end up at the nba after that this is like now you're going full bore into i think what it sounded like you most wanted to do was that sort of a, a dream job was that a destination or how did that happen um, was not a dream job and wasn't a destination. It it it, <laughs> it happened through the fact that I was um, again I was in San Diego and I said I was you know I'm a solo parent and so I was my twins were um, three at the time I had taken I had quit the Olympics and I was home with them for 14 months um, because I wanted to you know be the mom right and um, get my, got my butt kicked every day for 14 months because it was two of them and myself yeah and um, but I. I realized after um, I think they were like three years old, almost three, I thought um, I want them to grow up with their cousins because I grew up with my cousins and there, I was just in San Diego by myself. And so my sister was in Chicago. So I thought, I, you know, I'm going to 
my plan was to wait till spring of 2016. I'm going to spend 2015, the rest of 2015 and, you know, summer or winter in sunny California. Mm-hmm. But the spring of 2016, I'll make the move to Chicago. And, and I contacted a couple of people to see what was, what was going on in Chicago. And I, I didn't see anybody that even had like my credentials, my qualifications. So I thought I, you know, I'll get there. If I need to wait tables, till I get a job. I'm good with that. We'll just, we'll figure it out. And so that was my plan. And, and then I got a call, um, from the Chicago Bulls because Ken or Ken Revisa, which he's he has since passed away, but he was with the Cubs at the time, and they were they contacted him because they were looking for some for somebody, and so he didn't. I, I don't know if they asked him. I'm not really sure of the situation, but I know that he gave the Bulls several names, and mine was one of those names. And so when they called me, they had already vetted me. Hmm. I, I was thinking they were calling like this was the beginning. They already yeah, had, yeah <laughs> they, they did all their homework and it was you know, and so. Um, so got a call and said, this is what they're looking to do. And, you know, would I be interested? But had, they had no idea I was moving to Chicago anyways. Um, and so as the, the conversation, we had a you know, couple conversations and, you know, then I, 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 I move and I did say I was moving anyway. So, um, right. but, uh, but that, that's how it came to be. It was, but you can pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you can pay for it. Yeah. Um, but it was it was not something I was striving to do or, or working towards. It was it was more of a family. I want them to grow towards cousins, with their cousins. So I'll get to Chicago. Yeah. And let's find a job. And, you know, and um, the, the job found me. So it was perfect. I think it was perfect. And the work with the NBA on the you know player development stuff for rookies, that was the that came first before your work directly with the Bulls team. It did. It did. That that came first. I did that for a couple of years, the um, rookie transition camp and then the um the combines. I did that a couple of years in a row, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm fascinated to hear. So it looks like that you had to work with the athletes as they were coming into the NBA, setting goals in, in a couple places, finance, media, personal security, professionalism, and image, health and relationships, and player assistance. I'm curious if you can remember back, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of years ago, um, what some of the biggest struggles or some of the biggest surprises were coming from either, either your end, like you were surprised to learn that about them, or maybe they were surprised um, to realize, Oh, this is what it's like to be in the NBA and to be an adult and a real, a real world person. I think, I think the thing that surprised um, me, which I think actually surprised them as well, was the candidness of the presentation of the NBA um, to talk about, um, I'm just going to say safe sex. That's probably, yeah. The, I mean, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it's a very candid, you got to meet them on their level, right? Yeah. Yes. It was, it was very candid, very, um, very open. You know, the discussion was open, but it was not, there was not any, let's sugarcoat this. It was, this is, this is the world we live in and this is what could happen. And this is what you need to do and don't do this. But it was, um, I was shocked by it the first time, and, and I know they were because they. I mean, it, it took some time for them to kind of get into the you know the conversation. But um, I think it was I also think it was one of the best parts of the the two days because it, it was such a real. This is what it's going to be. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? Blue, which is also my favorite color. Blue. Okay, very simple word, but it can mean many things. Uh, from thirteen hundred, from the old French of the color of the clear sky. Uh, but in 1400, the figurative meaning of sad, sorrowful, afflicted with low spirits uh, showed up. 
implying a bruised heart or feelings. Uh, by 1500, the color of constancy because of Chaucer, but maybe for no bigger reason than just because it rhymes, true blue. Uh, 1840, lewd or indecent meaning came around, like working blue. Of course, there's also blue ribbon, blue streak, black and blue. In the case of Dr. Wendy, blue as an agent of calmness and serenity. Simple word, lots of meanings. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is alexithymia. In honor of the good doctor, this is a psychology term for those whose struggles go beyond merely just not wanting to talk about their emotions, but rather that they struggle to feel those emotions at all. Alexithymia. It's a broad term to describe people who have problems feeling emotions. It was coined by psychotherapists in 1973 from Greek words that mean not words emotion, meaning literally no words for emotion. Um, And surprisingly, given how most people have never heard of it, studies show that about one in 10 people fall somewhere on the alexithymia spectrum. And it usually is an aspect of how someone functions and how they deal with emotions, not a separate diagnosis. In fact, it's often a secondary diagnosis for something pre-existing like depression depression or autism. Um, There's a website about autism called spectrumnews.org that wrote, despite the name, the real problem for people with alexithymia is not so much that they have no words for their emotions, but that they lack the emotions themselves. Still, not everyone with the condition has the same experiences. Some have gaps and distortions in the typical emotional repertoire. Some realize they're feeling an emotion, but don't know which, whereas others confuse signs of certain emotions for something else, perhaps interpreting butterflies in the stomach as hunger pangs. So there's extreme examples and there's more common ones like a difficulty recognizing and talking about emotion in a subclinical level in a lot of men who are conforming to cultural notions of masculinity. So they think, say, sadness is feminine. That's called normative male alexithymia by some researchers. So uh, it can be very extreme. It can be um, more commonplace. But treating patients with this can be really difficult because they need more research to understand how or why it happens. And also because so often, because of the very nature of the condition, people who have it aren't aware that they suffer from it. Anyway, I thought I would... uh, you know, a little hat tip to the doctor with a psychology term. So in a sentence, the team psychologist had so much trouble getting the player to open up about his feelings, even after a thrilling championship win, she wondered if he might be on the alexithymia spectrum. Now let's get back to the interview. So you're working with NBA players at the rookie level as they first come in, but then actually becoming the director of performance and mental health for the Bulls actually becoming a performance coach who works with the players and staff. Um, Was there any trepidation for you? You had obviously worked with athletes at the highest level, but, you know, the Olympics are X amount of time and then off they go. This is a day in and day out, depending on the length of their contract, real relationship. Um, And I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Dr. Sharon and Ted Lasso. Like, are there concerns about, okay, which one of these guys is going to be the one that doesn't open up or who's going to be the toughest and who's going to, you know, be ready and open for this? Did you feel that? I I didn't. I didn't. I think because it's maybe because it's um, I, I, I take all athletes the same, whether it's professional or, you know, high school, there's, there's always those, you know, those that are not going to want to talk to me, which always, which are usually the ones that should talk to me, the mm-hmm. ones that don't want to talk to me, the ones right. that should talk to me. Right. Um, there's always the ones that are like 100% in because they know exactly what they need and what they can get. And there's ones that you, they kind of, that already have a really good idea. So you can kind of 
tweak a little bit what they're doing, but you can use in to help other players. And so mm-hmm. um, there was no concern there um, for me and, and how to work with them or what was going to be. I think my, the concern I had, and I think I know the concern I had was that I'd been home for 14 months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a, did I, do I remember how to do this? I hadn't done this. I've been spending <laughs> right. 14 months with two-year-olds. And so now I'm going <laughs> to. Oh, two-year-olds, I probably got you ready for some NBA players. <laughs> Seriously, right? So <laughs> it was, The tantrums, it was, the not sharing. Yeah, yeah it was exactly. <laughs> not, exactly. This is all mine. I'm not passing yes. it to you. Right. Uh, but yeah, um, that was more the concern of like, this is, I haven't done it for 14 months. And now I got to do a job and come home and take care of kids. That was more right. like. Mm-hmm. One of the concerns that I remember talking to, and probably it was three or four years ago now on my radio show, a former NBA player who was very critical of the way the NBA handled mental health and was also very skeptical about pronouncements from the league that they were going to start employing mental health professionals because there was a real concern about where the line is drawn between being employed by a team and then the client privilege of I'm going to tell you things that if my coach or GM knew might affect my playing time, might affect my contract status. So when you took this job, was there a conversation about to whom you're beholden and or where you fit in in terms of connecting the players to those other members of the team? hundred percent. There was, there's, there was, and they will, and it's ongoing. I mean, probably hundreds of conversations because it's, it's, it's a hard thing. I mean, it's a hard thing to, to to think about or to start to work within that confidentiality piece. And so, I mean, I know where it is. I mean, I tell the players where it is, you know, and so there's no blurness as I as they get to know me and they get to know this is exactly what I'm going to do this or what I'm not going to do. Right. And so it's it's an ongoing conversation about what it is. But I think that the piece is I learned that JMU, um, which I've taken on throughout, is that um, JMU hired me, the Olympics hired me and the Bulls hired me, but they are Technically, they are not my client. My client right. are all of the athletes. So they hold the confidentiality. And so that's who I need to work with in order to be able to express that. So it's they write my paycheck, but they they don't hold the confidentiality. It belongs to that players. And I learned that at JMU. And so I've been able to carry that through. And that's how I explain it to them. Um, that's how I explained it to the Olympics and to the Bulls. That this yeah. is what it looks like. Um, in addition to that piece, which is really, really important, is that if I share information, then I literally become useless. They're not going to talk to me. So then there's not, they're not going to get the assistance that they need. So now you're back to not having anybody helping the players. So you have to decide what's more important. You started out as a performance coach and then evolved after a couple of years working there to be the director of performance and mental health. So were you one of many performance coaches or a couple when you had that role? No, I was the only one. There was nobody there prior to. Um, but the, the, the thing that we struggled with is that they wanted to give me a title with psychology in there. And I didn't want that title coming in. I didn't want the sports psychologist. I didn't want psychology in my title because correct. And since there was nobody there before, I I thought that was, that's going to be a hindrance coming in the door. So let's just, let's just take that away, um, from, from that. And so we just came up with performance coach as a way to just try to to give me a title of something, you yeah. obviously need to have a title, but not to spook the, the players. Make it right about away. your play. Make it about making absolutely. you better. Mm-hmm. If that happens to be through the use of psychology, none the wiser, except for the doctor <laughs> in the room. Um, so so now as the director, are you a director of a program or are you now a director of, of other employees that are also working on, on behalf of the player mental health and performance? It's, 
it's a program. It's a program that we're trying that we are we are implementing and trying to continue and, and trying to grow. So it, it is a program that we put together. One of the things we've been talking about as we discuss everybody from Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan to Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles, mental health across the sports landscape, which has been so much more discussed uh, in recent years, is whether or not this has always been the case or whether it's just out in the open now. And I think everyone can agree, obviously, issues of depression and anxiety and everything else have always been there. But having worked with student athletes in 2005, which is a completely different time in terms of social media, technology, expectation, 24-7 news cycle, all this other stuff that's slightly different now. Does it feel like the problems have always been there, but they are exacerbated by the, by the specifics of our time and that there's probably more suffering from because of all of those elements that are now much more a part of the everyday for athletes? Mm. I, I do think that the problems have always been there. Um, to, to what extent, obviously, um, that, that's hard to judge. Um, however, I, I feel like because of the way that, I'm bringing, it's going to get a whole other philosophical <laughs> part, but I think that it's because of the way that parenting styles have shifted and right. changed throughout the years. And so, like when I was at JMU, and we still see it to this day, but the biggest problem we saw, not just with student athletes, but with athletes, peers, that they didn't know how to handle the stress because we had the helicopter parents. So they didn't know how to handle any kind of distress. And so that was a big thing that that we saw college students facing and still facing. And so and then, you know, you have the shift of we're still in that pace where they're where um, they don't know how to handle the stress, but they are trying to, you know, give them some independence. Right. And so so now we're seeing some of that that piece where they graduate and they expect to make 200,000 right away. Right. And then they don't they, they don't get that job. And then there's a problem. Right. And so the instant gratification is, becomes a problem as well. And so I think it's I think it's because of the way society has changed in the direction of parenting. And, and, and then also you throw in social media. I think that's what we're seeing, why we're seeing it more um, and more pronounced in different ways. But I definitely think it was always there. But I think it was it was not considered or should I say not considered. It was more of um, there were I think there was buffers in that because people learned Right. There, there were different ways. Coping I, mean, I, I learned how to handle some things. I learned how to do things yeah. growing up because of the way my parents raised me. And as opposed to some folks that because, again, this is the way the shift in parenting is where we got the Gen Z and the millennials, all those yeah. different because of the specific things. And so there are things that we're missing from they didn't get in order to help them. But we see that it's it's hurt them. And so um, so I think that's I think that's been the shift. And I think another piece of that is because of social media, you people talk about it. Yeah. Social media wasn't there before. So it wasn't talked. It was talked about at at their little corner of the world. So no one knew if somebody on the team was having a problem because it wasn't, you know, the media wasn't there. It wasn't blasted out. It was just, oh, this is what's going on. He's going to be out for a couple of days and right. or a week or his mom is. I mean, you, they say whatever. And that's what it is. And people go on, you know. Yeah. Um, but now it's why is he not playing? How come he's not starting? What's going on? And then you, you got to say something. You can't just say he's not playing for a reason. You've got to give a reason because of social media. And so and I think that's why we've seen it. We're seeing it more and, and being talked about it, I think is the best thing because it starts to normalize it. Right. Because we all experience it. We all have problems. We all have issues. We all have ups and downs. And so being able to see that, um, that that happens. I was talking to, I, I was talking to a college um, athlete the other day. And one of the things he said to me was that when he saw what was going on with Simone Biles is that, and the depression, he didn't realize that he was depressed until mm. 
he started hearing the things she was talking about. He was like, he had no idea that he was experiencing this. And, you know, this is, this was a, he's a junior. So he's maybe 20, 19, right. 19 somewhere in there. Right. A junior. Um, and he was just like shocked that this, that was, he was experiencing that, you know, it sent him to, to try to find out, you know, talk to, he sent him to talk to his parents and to try to find help. And so right. it, it's a good thing being out there for sure. Yeah, the social media is such a double-edged sword because on the one yeah. hand, there is this sharing of experience, this feeling that I remember when I was younger, it was everybody fit into some sort of box and some sort of, and the outliers were really out there. Mm-hmm. And now you try to talk about quote unquote outliers. You're like, I don't know, everybody's different. There's like so much uniqueness that is embraced and allowed that wasn't before. And so that's all wonderful. But it's also the the comparison mm-hmm. and the idea of looking around to your point, you want to make $200,000 right away. And it's not just that you're disappointed when you don't. It's that if you see anybody else who is having that incredible success, then all of a sudden it's, I'm the worst. And you didn't used to know what everybody else was up yes. to. I always <laughs> talk about this. I mean, I was, I was a very happy high schooler. I was very successful when it comes to sports and music and class. And I had friends, but I was not cool. Okay. So if I had known that there were awesome parties every week that I was not invited to. And that all the boys I liked were there with all the girls that I wanted to be like doing all the things that I didn't even know existed. It would have been so much harder for me. And I didn't know. I just, I, it, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Right. And so I do think that that's, a massive part of this. And I, you know, in trying to talk about, for instance, again, with the U S open, the multiple female athletes talking about whether it's death threats or just disappointment via social media or any number of things. A lot of the older people in my line of work would say, well, just don't read them then. Or just don't, don't go on your phone. And there is a part of me that says, yes, that's a very simple response is mm-hmm. don't give out as, as my one colleague said, it's basically like putting your phone number on the internet and then not putting caller ID and just, hey, everybody, call me and tell me what you think of me, right? Like you don't know who it's coming from or why or what they're saying. So I get that. But at the same time, the social media and that kind of communication is a completely different currency for people who have never not had it mm-hmm. than those of us that can remember what it was like before. And we still are addicted and we still use it all the time. But there is a part of us that can say, hey, remember when you didn't stay on your phone all day and ask for recognition or affirmation from strangers? maybe revisit that, maybe step away. And I don't know if that's fair to ask of people in their early twenties right now who never have really known life without it. No, I think that 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 is spot on. And I'm, you know, I'll give you a real life example of that is that I, at times I leave my phone away intentionally. So that way I'm not connected and, and not, it's not disturbing me. And my twins are eight and they will hear it and they will run and go get it. Because that's what they that's what they know at eight years old that the phone you you pay attention it's dings and they're like what is it go you know go get the phone from mom but I I leave it alone because I yeah I mean I grew up in a time where you didn't have that and so for them it's you need to it's an instant thing for me it's I don't need it all the time so absolutely right. yeah and I think that that's a conversation that's going to keep happening on people of your ilk, maybe not sports psychology, but psychology in general is how it's changing the brains of young people, how it's changing our behaviors, how we can proactively and intentionally use it for positives while understanding and better, you know, separating ourselves from, from the negative effects. One of the other conversations we've been having around mental health and how you distinguish it from mental toughness, particularly in the sports world. So I'll just ask you flat out, how do you distinguish the idea of mental health from the idea of mental toughness? I think of it more like a plot application. 
I think mental toughness is, 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 is the, or maybe not application, it's the action. So mental, mental health is um, maybe a noun and mental toughness is the verb. It's, it's the action. So um, in order to, to be mentally tough, you're doing something. Right. And mental, I think mental health is something it's a it's a combination of all the different things that are going on in your life. But you don't have to be actively doing something to be mentally to have that mental health. Right. Um, but to, the mental toughness, you, you have to actively do something because there's something going on in your life that's distracting you from accomplishing a task. So then you're having to put something in place to buffer that to accomplish that task. So it's an action that's happening. Yeah. Maybe you need mental health in order to be mentally tough when a situation arises. It's more difficult to be mentally tough if your mental health isn't addressed and taken care of and, and satisfactory. Well, I think, but I think that mental health is, is not, um, I don't think you need all the aspects of mentally of mental health to be mentally healthy. Hmm. I, I think that you can, you can have different parts of your life that could be, I mean, like you could be financial, could be, in a healthy space, socially could be in a healthy space, you know, career-wise could be in a healthy space, but maybe you're, it's the, the personal or the spiritual is not in healthy. So, so to say that that's, you're not mentally healthy, I, I think that that would be an incorrect, for me, I think that's an incorrect statement because I think that you're, you have four thing, four aspects of it. And so you're right. working to, to maybe bring the others together. Um, so when something happens, then you're going to, you're not going to rely on the spiritual because that's not there yet, but you're going to rely on maybe the financial or the social. Yeah. Those pieces are there. So that's what you're going to look to do. Um, I think where we get in trouble is that when something happens, maybe you do go to, on the spiritual side and that's not there for you. I think what we were trying to figure out when we were talking about mental health versus mental toughness was the idea of an athlete who comes forward and says, this is too much for me. The pressure to win, the criticism from social media, the expectation from sponsors, all of it has become too much. I need to step away or I need to change my behavior in some way. It's not that that person is not deserving of empathy or sympathy or understanding, but are there other people who are equally affected by those factors and find a way to push through and continue competing without stepping aside, without taking a break? And is it fair then to offer up so much to the one without recognizing the, the fight of the other? that maybe is more silent. And, and I think to me that that is, uh, that, that view of it reveals a, a probably misunderstanding of what's going on. But I understood that the person who said that was trying to offer up the idea that there are plenty of people who are also dealing with all that and isn't part of their athletic success and greatness. The fact that they can succeed through all of that and become winners despite it. Absolutely. You know, as you're talking the phrase that that came to my mind is that the phrase, you know, just because it looks easy doesn't mean that it is right. Right. And so the, the folks that are, that are making it look easy, we think that it is easy. Um, although we don't know what they're doing or how they're struggling or how they're handling it, but because it, outwardly they're not showing it, we feel like they are able to handle it and they're able to, you know, accomplish where they need to. But then the ones that are talking about it, we think just what you're saying, well, they're not, why are they able to handle it? Cause we're, we're seeing, we're doing the comparison. Um, I, I view it as that they're both, struggling with it. They're both having the issue. They're both trying to handle it. One of them is just talking about it outside. Yeah. One of them may be talking about it internally, um, but it, but it's, but it's still there. And so we, as people, it, we are, we are, we're critical. And so we're going to, if you talk about it, you bring it out, someone's going to pick it to death. And, and that, I don't think that that's a social media thing. I think that's just us as people. Is that if you say, boy, I'm struggling with this, someone is going to see somebody else that's not struggling and go, why are they not? Well, it's the same situation. Why are they not struggling? Um, we want to see that everybody else is handling it the same, but that's not that's not what it is. Not We're really. not all handling the same, which back to what I was saying before is that we want to normalize it 
and that this is something that everybody or all the athletes are experiencing it. They're just experiencing it in a different way. What do you think are some of the biggest misnomers around mental health and sports and sports psychology, especially as the conversations are becoming much more ubiquitous these days? Are you listening or overhearing a TV show or radio show and thinking, man, they just don't get that right? I, I think that, that you need to have, there needs to be a problem or an issue going on with you in order for you to talk to somebody, to, mm. to use a sports psychologist. Something negative has to be going on. It's not just because you're trying to be proactive. I think that's a a misnomer. I also think a misnomer is that there's a thought that you could have like a conversation or maybe two conversations and they're going to fix you. They're going to tell you what to do and poof. There's a magic pill and it's all going to be, (laughs) (laughs) the the shift is going to be there. Um, there, there, There's that piece as well. Um, And I think the thought that if you are, if you're struggling, then you're weak. I think that's a big thing. So people, you know, why people don't want to say they're struggling because there's that right. perception. If there's something going on, you're struggling, then there's that perception that you're that you're weak. And I think quite the opposite is going on. I think if you're struggling and you're able to talk about it, I think you're showing that vulnerability. That makes you strong because nobody wants to show vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to show that. And so if you're able to show that and still be able to process and go through and strive and work it out and the challenges, I think that shows your strength. But we just don't see it as strength. I've asked this question of a couple different guests on my podcast, a neuroscientist, a psychologist, um, and I have not gotten an answer. And I don't know if there is one, but I'm curious what you make of this. So in any situation, if you are, if you have some sort of mental health issue, whether it's diagnosed or not, and you approach someone for help and they tell you various things about what you can do and how you can make it better and you choose to work on those things and get better, that's one option. Or no matter what somebody says to you, you don't change your behavior and you continue to be one way or another. That could be narcissism. That could be depression. That could be bipolar, whatever, all those things. Is your personality the same as your brain? And by that, I mean, if you are someone who is affected by perhaps a pretty serious diagnosable mental health issue, and no matter what, you when you go and get help and people tell you what to do, you can't do it. Is that because you're choosing not to? Oh, he doesn't care that he's this way. Or is it because your brain that has wired you to be that way is the very same brain that dictates whether you're someone who is capable of the neuroplasticity to change? Because I think when I, when I, the reason it made me think of this is someone who is a full-on narcissist and it affects all their relationships and nobody wants to be around them. And no matter how many times that person gets told that they do not change, is that because they're the worst and they're a terrible person and they, or are they, is the same thing that landed them there, the same quality that they can't escape because in the end there isn't that much free will. We think there's free will, but that comes from the very part of our brain that allows us to be elastic and change. So, I don't know if it's going to be a really clear answer or not. I was provided you didn't get answers, so I don't know if I should actually. No, answer. no one. Everyone has tried though, so I want to. I want you to. I, you understand what I'm asking, right? I, I do. Okay. I do. So what I I think I do. So my so there's several things. I think the things that you talked about, like narcissism, borderline, some of those that are that are access to that are personality. I think those folks. It is hard for them to shift. Because it is part of their personality. So there's, but I mean, but there's training like their DBT, there's training that can help them 
learn to shift. Not that, not that they're going to learn to have empathy or learn to that this is not a good thing, but they can, they'll learn that this is what happens when you do X, Y, and Z, and then they'll learn right. or they'll shift that, right? So they're, they're, they'll be aware of that piece. So that, that personality step part, I think, is, is another thing. But I, I also think that there's, there's a group of folks that, you know, I call the, I call the yeah butters, <laughs> that no matter what, whatever it is, that, you know, life is bad, they, you know, work is bad, all these things that got this negative and you try to help them and it's a, yeah, but, well, yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, but, you know, right. and, and I think those are the folks that are afraid to take the steps to make the change. It's so much safer to be in that negative, although they don't like it, but they're, but they're used to it and they're There's aware an of excuse it. then, right. And, yes. And so, but to, to move out of that means that they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to put forth that. And what if they fail in that? And so there's a fear and staying there, fear and moving that. And so I think there's just a comfort level in staying in the, all the, all the negative. Yeah. But the yeah, better. So I think that's a, I think there's a group of, group of folks that, that land in that, that piece where I think it's more of a fear of yeah. trying, of having to do something different, you know? And so I do think there's folks that, that, like I said, the personality, personality disorders, like narcissism. And it's your, it's your brain. And that's it, what I find, that's what I find yeah. fascinating because we decide as a society and part of that is based on how others are affected by it you know a murderer is a monster a pedophile is a monster but someone who struggles from other mental health related things that also are not supposed to be the way your brain works you shouldn't want to murder people you shouldn't want to sleep with children Mm -hmm. that's known so clearly something is wrong in the brains of those people but we have decided that they are monsters but somebody else who has a different also not their fault related brain disorder or issue is empathetic and let's mm-hmm. help them. And I'm just sort of fascinated by the idea that we perceive some as choice and others as inevitabilities. And then the way they react to them, we perceive the same way, but isn't it this very same brain that got you there that has to then decide that it wants to change and it can. Maybe that's the way our brains work to make it feel better for us. That right. we, we need to have the categories so that way we can, sit with what what's going on with all then those we can blame things. someone when they exactly. don't do what we want them to do instead of saying you don't have a choice your brain is just telling you to be an asshole all the time and mm-hmm. you should get it you should want to change but your brain yeah that's why everybody so far has said it might be a question for a philosopher <laughs> yes. and not anyone else. Uh, the search continues i suppose um we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you too, specifically for your job, as opposed to maybe someone who's a regular psychologist, therapist, psychiatrist, anybody dealing with people who are coming to them with problems and hoping to talk through it, is you're also dealing with all of the built-in ideas of sports, play through pain. If you can physically do it, you should. If you are hobbled, go complete that vault for the gold. If your arm is falling off and you could still throw the ball, at least get your team to the championship. How much does that stand in the way of, in sports psychology and working with athletes to, to be their best to perform, needing to deprogram some of that stuff so that they can build back up correctly? Sure. And I don't know if, I, if I've experienced um, a lot of it for that to happen, because I think Fortunately, unfortunately, again, with the shift of the players that we see now and the players that I was experiencing at JMU, you know, if the injury, it's the thought of this is I need to sit down and take care of it and make sure it's OK. And so there we don't see that. I, I haven't seen as much the An injury to physical body or mental health. Right. It, it's not right. the thought I'm going to play regardless. It's I'm not at 100 percent. So, right. you know, they want to play. I think that's more of my, my struggle is is getting them to see that you're not going to play at 100 percent, 100 percent of the time. So they want to be 100% and, and play. So they, they sit out longer because they want to be 100%. 
Interesting. Um, to get in. And so it's more to of a, a fault, do you think? I think, it, I think it can be. I think it right. can be. And I'm thinking specifically about a couple of players when I was um, for a specific team when I was with the Olympics and they needed those players to, 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 to play. And they were, because they weren't 100%, you know, the, the ladies didn't get in. And it was needing to help them see you're, it, you're not going to get 100%. You're not going to be 100%. You can play at, at 90% and still be really effective. But if you want to wait for 100%, that that's you know, most of us don't function at 100 percent all the time, right? and that's to your point earlier. If you right. got four or five, work with that if work you can it. and you feel comfortable. Work with that because that's better than a than a nothing. Correct. If you keep waiting for a five, you're missing the opportunities to absolutely. Um, can you talk about? And I don't know if this comes up much in your work with, with specifically the NBA or maybe just in the other groups you've worked with. We know as a fact, and, and studies tell us that racial minority groups are less likely to seek mental health care, are less likely to feel open to talking about uh, mental health issues. Does that feel like it's changing? Does it feel like simply acknowledging that and us talking about specifically the struggles for Black men to to be open about this? Um, does that seem to be shifting? I think I think that it's shifting, and I, I think that it. I say that because in conversations I've had with other people, that that sense that it's that it that it that it's shifting. Um, but I, I I obviously would love it to be even, I'd love it to be more. But I think the more you see it, and then the culture, the more that it's talked about in the communities, the easier it is for other for other folks to talk about it, young folks to talk about. It. And so I, I definitely see that there's there's a shift there, but we could do so much more for sure. I don't know if it's too vague, but if you have them and you feel like you have maybe your top two or three tips for people who are, are, are struggling, maybe it's, you know, because of COVID, maybe they've always had these issues. Do you always start somewhere or is it a matter of you need that one-on-one, let me get to know all the context before I even advise anything? It depends. If it's, if I, if it's going to be someone that we're going to work, if I'm going to be working with you for a period of time, then yes, I need that. I want to know all of that. Um, if it's, if it's a, one off, like, I mean, you know, I do presentations, if it's something like that, then I, I definitely do like a, a, there's a general thing. I mean, I think that like, for example, like for COVID, I think one of the things I talk about is to give yourself grace. I don't think that we gave, we give ourselves enough grace. We're trying to do everything and be all things to everybody in this, when, when we were locked in and, um, and then when we couldn't, it became a problem. So recognizing that this is the situation and give yourself a little grace that it's going to, it's not going to be great today. And it's fine. And you can sit down and watch a movie and tomorrow you get back up and and start yeah. all over. And so I think giving yourself grace is, um, is something you should, you should do. I also think that you should do something to feel better, something that's going to help you feel better. And, and I, when I say that, I always get, Oh, but I, I, you know, I don't have time to get a massage. And I think, and I always say, you don't, I, I don't mean get a massage, yeah. listen to music, I mean, go for a walk, pet your dog. But that's exactly go for a long walk, take a hot shower, have a cup of tea, make your favorite food, get a cookie. I mean, there's so many things you can do. If you actually think about it, that's going to raise your mood. And that's what you should do. Don't think anything gracious. If anything gracious, don't think anything grand, just something small that's going to help improve your mood. Yeah. I've gotten really into neuroplasticity and the idea of gratitude practices, where if you train your brain to go looking for the positive, mm-hmm. it gets there faster because you create yeah. actual synapses in your brain. And it's been incredible over the last yeah. five years. I just had this big party on Saturday. I was planning it for months. It was a different holiday at every stop. We recreated all the holidays that we missed last year, ending in New Year's, supposed to be on a boat. Mm-hmm. And we're in the middle of celebrating Halloween. So we still have Thanksgiving, Christmas. I'm so excited. The boat on the lake with fireworks. And I get a call. The boat's canceled. One of the crew members has COVID. They can't work because they all work in close quarters. And I mean, in previous years, 
There might've been tears. There definitely would have been anger. There definitely would have been, this whole party is about making up for all the holidays we missed because of COVID. We can't miss another one because of COVID now. We're supposed to be done with that. And I, I couldn't even believe it myself. I go, all right. I hung up the phone. I go, all right, how am I pivoting? How am I going to make this good? Okay, here's where we're getting dropped off. There's a tiki bar near there. We'll pretend that we went to a beach for New Year's and we can uh-huh. still see the fireworks. Yeah. And it happened. It would have happened anyway before because that's how right. I operate. But it right. would have taken a while. I would have first gone through all the stages of <laughs> anger and grief and why me? And instead it was like that fast. And I know because over the couple of years I've started doing that, that that's mm-hmm. been working for me. And mm-hmm. I try to recommend that to people because I do find that, perspective. Yes. You don't want to say it could be worse. I could, you know, and name off things. It's not a trauma competition, but to, to have that perspective of all the ways that you're lucky and here's what you still have, your health, your, you know, everything else. Um, it works in those moments when mm-hmm. you start to get really, get really lost. And so I, I'm on board with all that stuff that you guys do and all the sciencey stuff and all the research, because I feel it working when I actually put in the work myself. And yeah. I, I imagine for you, that's one of the biggest first steps is just to get the players to buy in. They'll come in. They probably are told you got to come this many sessions a week and this much time and they show up, but then they need to really be there and be in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And oh, and I will have to say that I, I, I subscribe to the philosophy that if they have to come, it's not going to work. So there's no, really, yeah, there's no, you have to come. So I've never done that from my days at JMU that we don't, there's no have to. So if they don't come on their own, it's not going to work. You know, it's, it's, it's the five-year-old at the broccoli t- at the table, that's right, right, right. broccoli. We'll just all sit here, sleep yeah. at the table. I think the commercial says, we'll just sleep here. Then. <laughs> yeah. That's what's going to happen. Cause yeah. no one wants to do so. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. So you just waste our time. So it needs to be something that they want to do. And, and I don't have office hours, so I'm just always around. So our conversations are at breakfast, walking to the plane and the gym. It's just those so you travel time. with the team. Yes. So it's just a five, 10 minute wow. conversations. Again, I learned that at JMU is if I'm just, if I'm just there, there's so much more schedule, yeah. schedule appointment. I mean, not like that wouldn't come, but it's, I, I mean, just being at practice, I have, can have 15 conversations. Yeah. What one hour is just one hour. That's just one person. So um, I'd rather Dr. Do Sharon that. from Ted Lasso. You're just, you're always around sitting in the stands, hovering okay. by the meeting, waiting for someone to stop by. Um, I love it. So in addition to all of the other jobs you have and all the other stuff that you work on, you also are the executive director and founder of Wisdom Knot. So tell me more about that. So Wisdom Knot is a, is a nonprofit that I founded, um, and it came back to the story I was telling you about with, and not knowing about sports psychology until I was 25. So I realized that if I didn't know about a career in sports, besides being an athlete until I was 25 and I was raised in upper middle class America, I, I know... Other kids, they're not they're they're not going to know about all these careers yeah. besides being an athlete and coach. And so, Wisdom Not is about um, exposing inner city youth to careers in sports besides being an athlete. And so, we don't want to take away your dream, you know, dream big, want to be in a in the NBA, NFL, MLB. Um, I just want to give you a plan B, C, D, and F when A doesn't work out. I love because that. it's the one percent of the one percent. And so, our tag is you know above the one percent because that's what we're that's trying so to do. So great. It's, so we use um, basketball camps, we use workshops, um, and so we're doing a lot of different things in 2022, trying to expose all the youth, to, as many youth as we can, to there's over 100 careers you can do in sports. Yours is one of them, besides being an athlete, right? right? And so and I think the thing, folks, from my experience, they get stuck and I'm going to be in the NBA, and that doesn't happen, and then they, they, they don't continue, and they could go to school for another, another career. 
I could have used that. I, I mean, I talk about all the time when people ask about how I got to where I am. I say it didn't even occur to me to work in sports until I was in my mid-20s because I just didn't see enough women doing it. I'd mm-hmm. been an athlete. I'd loved watching sports. I'd loved playing them. And it hadn't occurred to me for even a second that I could do it as a job. And that's fascinating that you do that. In the, in the time that you've run it, have you found that there's a particular kind of, of work that a lot of them have ended up filtering into? Um, I, you know, we've only been doing this for like for four years, so we're pretty new, but I will we're say still that, pretty young. Yes. But I will say the biggest, um, surprise that we've had too, um, that the, um, the youth have seen is social media because they don't really think about that. Somebody's actually posting, right, right. right? Although they do it themselves. And so yeah. I've always had, I've had different teams bring their, their, their social media person, come and talk to the, to the folks at the camp, the kids at the camp. And so they're always shocked that, it's just, you're like, this is my job. I have these three phones and I'm posting on right. all things you see that that's me. And so they're surprised that that's, that's an actual job. And that's so, fantastic. What a great idea. So smart and so necessary to engage with people who are already sports crazed to, to learn about all the behind the scenes. You just don't mm-hmm. think about that when you're playing and when you're a kid. So no, cool. you don't. And so that's what we're trying to do. And so if you're interested in it, where, you know, our, our website is wisdom, not org, And so We've got a whole plan, a whole schedule for 2022 coming out with different um, panels and virtual exposures to to expose kids to to all these different careers. So we would love to see people to sign up to be able to attend it. Awesome. All right. Before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does that nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It's 10 speed round questions. Number one, your current career is canceled. What job do you do instead? Wait tables. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, when I found that I was having twins. <laughs> uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Oh, making everybody happy. Oh, what a wonderful answer. <laughs> Never going to get that one again. It's always like singing or basketball. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Serena Williams. Ooh, that would be a good one. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Um, people that, it, that, that complain and don't do anything about it. Me too. It's like, listen, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to vent and then I'm going to ask you, what are the changes that we're making so that this isn't continuing to be a problem? And then if they keep coming back, I'm like, same problem you had before. What are we doing? What are we doing about it? Okay. Uh, I don't think that's meaningless or a pet peeve. I think that is a well-deserved grievance with people. Um, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? The most embarrassed I've ever been. Let's see. I think it, I, during COVID when I was uh, on the Peloton in my sports bra and, and I think it was actually sports bra and underwear and my son, the class was a uh, kid's class. They had to, uh, I don't remember the sign was in was they were supposed to show their parent. And so oh, no. they put the, the iPad and it was bra and panties on a Peloton. And it was, oh boy. Oh <laughs> boy. They can't be Fabulous. trusted. Yeah, Kids and no. screens and zoom can't be mm-hmm. trusted. Um, mm-hmm. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I think I would like to improve my, my sense of tact. I don't, I don't have really 
Hmm. It's not that great. I have to, I have to work at it. So mm-hmm. I think I'd like to prove not having to work at it. <laughs> yeah. For it to come more naturally, you have to have tact practice instead of gratitude <laughs> practice, create those synapses to get to the, to the tact. Um, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Could play my next party. I think it, dude, I love Maxwell. I love Maxwell. Oh, it's going to be a sensual party. That's kind yeah, of party. I know. <laughs> I'm not trying to, but I just love Maxwell. It's going to end up that way. Um, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? My biggest failure? Undergraduate the first time. <laughs> Where was that? At Southwestern Oklahoma State. <laughs> what would you try to study there? Um, it was the same. I just, I just, because I couldn't play basketball and, um, which was my entire identity, I stopped going to school. So they kicked me out for a year. Okay. Yeah. Even doctors can get kicked out of school. That's right. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Um, individual. Oh yeah. Not like the good doctor. Uh, three words. Can it be hyphenated, family-oriented? Sure, we'll take that. I'll give you that for one. Yeah, you got two more. Um, Funny. Mm -hmm. Um, Caring. Those are very good. Final question, who should I have on this podcast? It could be anyone from any industry, just someone you think I would find interesting. I would say somebody outside the box because that's just what I like to do. Um, Bob Daughtry. He's not an athlete. I think, although I think he played basketball at Harvard when he went to Harvard, but um, he is in the financial world. World. Yes. And and brings in, tries to bring in sports and finance, but he does huge things with big companies. And yes. Cool. I'll check him out. Uh, Thanks for doing this. So interesting to pick your brain on these issues that are really all over the place in the sports world right now. And next time we need an expert, I know who to call. (laughs) that's what she said oh yeah one more thing so this is where i rant or rave tell you something to read watch listen to maybe i'll complain maybe i'll tell you a story today what's on my mind are two things one is troubling one is moving first two tweets that came to my attention and shocked me to the very core first professor teacher sarah j jackson who tweeted one of my students really wrote a sentence that begins quote In the late 1900s, I had to reread it three times to realize what the heck was going on. My feelings are hurt. To which charismatic megafauna responded, one of my students wrote that the gender roles portrayed in Friends were, quote, traditional because the show was from the last century. Oof. And double oof. Oh, my God. Calling the 1980s and 90s the late 1900s generally feels like a stab wound to my very heart. And I would like to quote someone on TikTok who heard about these kids, these students, and said this, man, these kids. (laughs) Okay, to leave you on a better, deeper note, if you didn't see the Emmys, I would suggest Googling and watching Michaela Cole's acceptance speech for her writing on the extremely powerful HBO series, I May Destroy You. She uh, wrote a message to fellow writers, but I think it applies to all of us. And it said, in part, 
quote, write the tale that scares you, that makes you feel uncertain, that isn't comfortable. I dare you. In a world that entices us to browse the lives of others to help us better determine how we feel about ourselves and to in turn feel the need to be constantly visible, for visibility these days seems to somehow equate to success, do not be afraid to disappear from it, from us for a while and see what comes to you in the silence. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 